Welcome to the Harnessing Happiness podcast. Upbeat vibes generated and transferred to you. Now here's your host, Sarah J. Naylor. Hello and welcome to Harnessing Happiness with myself, Sarah J. Naylor. Thank you, as always, for stopping by and listening to my podcast, which, as you know by now, is sponsored by me. <laughs> and I am a coach. You can find me at sarahjnaylor.com, obviously a coach, podcast host, and uh, an author, writer, speaker, all of those kind of things. So if you're interested, please do head over to my website. And I always like to keep it short and sweet, so I actually really want to get on with uh, introducing my guest. <laughs> so that's what I'm going to do without any further ado. I have with me today the fabulous Naomi and... And I am going to hand over to her. As you know, my guests do the far better job of introducing themselves than I do. So, Naomi, take the stage. Please introduce yourself to my fabulous listeners. Hi, Sarah. Thanks very much for inviting me on. So, I'm a, a consultant clinical and forensic psychologist and honorary professor of psychology at Nottingham Trent University. And I currently work with elite athletes, helping them manage transitions more effectively but I've spent many years working inside the British prison system. Yeah I know fascinating stuff and I really want to know more I mean let's start at the beginning what took you down that route did, did you always want to be a forensic psychologist I mean what, how did it start I mean what, what inspired you because I'm always fascinated with people in their careers. Yeah no I went to university and did I only applied to do psychology in one place I'd applied to do history everywhere else and thought I don't want to be a history teacher and I, coming from a working class background didn't really have a sense of what scope of jobs you could do but my dad had done a, an O-level in psychology and I thought that looked interesting and then I just decided to I was going to do my degree in I thought it was a good generic subject the things that I was really attracted to when I did my degree were all of the elements which seemed to be about aspects of behaviour that were perhaps on the face of it don't look very easy to understand but actually digging deep into them you can see there's an explanation for them and after I graduated my first post was in a prison working as a as a prison psychologist and to be honest with you I whilst I found that really fascinating I felt a little bit like I was being let loose on people and I also could see that childhood trauma was a massive factor in why people were ending up in prisons everyone's story was always about you know they'd always had very difficult upbringings um, experienced abuse neglect very disruptive relationships and poor attachments and I thought really I need to go and train as a clinical psychologist to be equipped to deal with this and so that's that's what I did but I I'd loved the forensic element of the work stuck so even when I finished training as a clinical psychologist I still wanted to be back in the forensic world applying that knowledge so the, the clinical I mean well I, I think all things psychological when you start to understand how the brain works and as you referred back I mean so much is impacted by childhood and behaviors and, and at the end of the day you know it's understanding that the parents and the like that wherever you are you pet the parents are doing I mean you don't get a manual do you to be a parent let's face it I mean I didn't <laughs> And you do what you can do, but and it's all learnt behaviour. So your learnt behaviour is then impacting on the child that you've brought into the world, and you don't know what you're doing and how it's damaging. And it's just. But then I also I've got this sort of other belief that you know you decide on the lifetime you want to have and the experiences you're going to have, and that's why you end up having that. But that's a different topic altogether. But therefore you can learn from the experiences. But it's actually understanding that. But you can only get to that when you start to realise this happens for you to learn from it, which is a hard. It's a kind of 
a bitter pill to taste if you don't kind of go deeper into it. But that's, I'm probably going a bit too deep for this podcast. But yeah, I mean, it's it's fascinating, isn't it? And I say, with you going into the clinical side, I mean, I, I'm, I'm interested to know what was involved in the, you know, the clinical side of it. What did you study further when you go into sort of clinical psychology? Well, I guess clinical psychology prepares you for being a therapist. And also it gives you a much broader basis of training so these these days as a forensic psychologist you do there are routes where you can have a broader base of training but the point where I was working in prisons it was going to do a, a an MSc and all of your knowledge would be drawn from being in the prison whereas as a clinical psychologist you had to do a placement working with young people children and young people and their families you also worked with older adults people with intellectual disabilities so it actually gave you a more rounded experience of humans and you also got the opportunity to work with a range of people whose approaches to therapy were drawn from quite different schools of of therapy so you could get a sense of what you felt sat with you as opposed to if you're training on the job you're very much influenced by the person who line manages you and it's and it can be quite hard to find other other knowledge. Yeah, because the thing is that that is the beauty of it is there are an awful lot of therapies out there that can help so many people, aren't there? I mean, it, and we're all different as humans. We all experience the world in different ways. We all access information. We've got different internal drivers. We've got different experiences. I mean, I know I'm very much like, for instance, sort of an activist by learning style. So if I was actually expected to change my behaviour through reading a manual, <laughs> you know, it just wouldn't work. It's got to be in accordance. And I think when you actually flipping that, going back into the whole education system, full stop, children are expected to learn in this sort of manufactured, sort of churn them out fashion. But actually, we all learn at different times of our life. We all have different ways of learning like I was just saying I mean I'll, I will learn probably from doing it or you know but I'm quite a pragmatist as well you know so put me down show me how to do it and then it, it, it registers. Well as, as you know I also host a, a podcast Locked Up Living and we recently guested Naomi Fisher who's a clinical psychologist who works with families and kids that don't go to school that do home education and she likened education and school in particular to being a bit like having to do mandatory training like five days a week and I think for some kids that is the experience it's not necessarily what's gonna fire them up and get them passionate about learning and that's what we want isn't it we want we want people to love learning rather than feel it's killed for them Mm. And that's it, it's tapping into what, what where your purpose is, what fires you up, what your talents and passions are. I mean, in terms of education, I would love to see the teachers, sort of like, being like a conductor in a classroom, but the pupils, the students, call them what you will, will be able to pick their subjects so they can learn maths through, I don't know, football statistics or, you know, history through the history of fashion, you know. So understanding. So it's, it's not about just being able to quote something. I mean, I know I didn't do history at school because I knew when I was at school, the, the teacher was great and everybody was going to do history because the teacher was great, but actually I knew it was going to be sort of the Second World War and all that kind of thing, and it wasn't of interest to me, so I didn't do that subject. But it's, yeah, it's, it is about firing people up and getting them excited. And when you, you know, I've done um, a podcast with Hayley Forbes, who's a, well, she's an entrepreneur, but she's also does, um, what does she call it? Radical homeschooling? I can't remember what it's called now, but it's, it's all homeschooling. She's got two or three out of four children with autism. She said it was hard for that first year because she gave them the opportunity they could make their own decisions about when they went to bed, what they ate, when they ate, and all that kind of stuff. And then also the education, how they were educating them. But she said like a 12-year-old is now sort of computer programming, doing all sorts of stuff, just because they've got that freedom to make their own decisions. That's it. We, and we, we manage to learn stuff, don't we? We follow our interests. And the stuff that we're interested in learning, you, you do a lot 
a lot better with but but I think you know therapy is quite similar that unfortunately I think probably the most common form of therapy that's offered to people certainly on the NHS is cognitive behavioral therapy and that that tries to make sense of the thoughts that under underpin the the emotion and the behavior but actually for a lot of people it's what's going on in their body and we have an automatic response to something we're not really conscious of the thought so something about how you access that part of somebody that felt sense and help change that so that they are able to have a different response to situations absolutely because you can go in obviously with the subconscious you can change you can change it's not taking their memory away but it's changing that experience of the memory down to what's been sort of anchored in there isn't it you know and you can change all that and people can feel that but, you know, different people feel it in different places. And there's, as I say, we, what we've already said, there's a whole host of therapies that can work. I mean, I've experienced EFT. I've experienced, you know, hypnotherapy, regressional hypnotherapy. And I've seen havening, which is, I think, amazing, which works on sort of also the you know, energetic aura because there's more in the unseen than there is in the scene. It's, it's just a fascinating <laughs> subject. So how have you found, I mean, I want to sort of gear this back into where you've been and obviously where you're at right now. But when you were working in the prison, system I mean how did how did that feel for you as a person though because obviously you're obviously going through the gates to work with people and it's you you are sort of enclosed I mean I've never been through a prison door I mean I don't know what's what's that whole feeling like because I can't you know you've just got must have so much angst within that sort of whole building and buildings hold energy it's quite yeah it's quite a horrible I think it varies from prison to prison so I worked in Leeds prison for a couple of years which is an old Victorian prison and you just felt filthy walking in and out. It's not much ventilation, and you just felt filthy just being in there as if you were absorbing it into your skin. And then I spent 17 years working at Whitemore Prison, which was a much newer build, and so it was quite light and quite airy. But even so, that whole process of you can feel yourself bracing as you're going into a prison, and obviously the searching is very rigorous, so you're patted down as you go into work every day, had to take your shoes off, everything has to go through a metal detector so that the, you're getting a, a very loud message of not being trusted as you're going into work. And at one point, they even had a tannoy outside the prison reminding people to take stuff out belonging, make sure they didn't have their mobile phone in their bags. But it was like being bollocked as you walked into work um, because this person was shouting at you, stop, have you got a mobile phone in your bag? That kind of gets your heckles up a little bit as you're going into work anyway. But then also when you're in work, the particular unit I worked on was for men who were identified as they were they were perceived as being untreatable psychopaths and they'd all committed extremely serious offences acts of murder rape very serious violent offences and there were people who struggled to manage their emotions so being in there there were you know there'd be quite a lot of verbal aggression I would say there wasn't a lot of physical aggression and that that was because we made the men feel safe but there was a lot of verbal aggression and hostility Uh, but also you're also hearing about and reading details of really horrible offences and then also the men's own personal stories were also really horrible and you know listening to the accounts of brutality that they'd experienced so it was quite a challenging environment to be in but it wasn't all negative so you'd be exposed to feelings like fear and sadness and shame But equally, there were moments of real profound growth in there. So we we used to have men for five years of treatment. And at the start, they'd all be loners and they didn't want to be in a room together, doing groups together. And they were very antagonistic towards authority figures. And then by year three of treatment, they'd be saying, this is the first place in my life I've ever felt loved and cared for. 
So those kind of experiences are really profound and seeing people grow, people become more at peace and, you, you know, you'd literally have people who at the start of therapy their eyes would be like bog-eyed with anxiety and hypervigilance and then sort of later on in treatment you could see from their faces that they were much more at peace with themselves and those were really kind of like special experiences. Because I think the thing is I mean for people that are listening they're probably thinking well why why should they have all this treatment and why should they get to they've done this wrong but it's actually understanding why that human has done that activity and why they have behaved the way the way they have done. And it's let's go back to the fundamentals in life. It's actually being, you know, loving and caring for people and people react and behave in certain ways because of their upbringing, because of how they've been and maybe things aren't wired up properly and it's un- I think it's educating people to understand that and actually if we can educate the people internally to understand that that makes the world a safer place anyway, doesn't it? You know, I mean the mass public, I mean just it's just like it's it's, edu- it's all down to education and understanding how we are and who we are as humans and you have compassion for other people and you understand and you can it's not about letting people off the hook but actually if you can educate people and help them so that they do heal then they're not going to do that again and then they're going to work with other people and help them not do that again because it's that positivity then spreads and it's, it's to be looked upon positively not negatively because it's energetically it changes everything absolutely i mean even even if you couldn't care less about the people that are in there it's like actually from a economic sense it doesn't make sense it's expensive to keep people in prison so uh, you know you don't want to do that and then if people are going out into the community you want them to be safe and there can be this tendency to kind of like want to shame people but actually if you want people to not be offending shaming is is not the route to that you want people to feel safe and quite often well typically people who are in prison are people who haven't really felt part of the community they've felt marginalized they felt like society doesn't care about them so why should they care about society and society's rules whereas actually if you treat people decently and make them feel accepted and part of and that's not to say you accept their offending behaviour, but you can accept the person without accepting their behaviour and help people take responsibility for what they've done um, more effectively, I think, by having that kind of approach. Well, it comes down to that understanding and acceptance. And if that person's taken... Well, at the end of the day, it's all, we're all ultimately responsible for ourselves and our actions. And if that person has taken that responsibility, they've done that time and they've done that work and they've been released. I mean, obviously, I know there's, there's people that get released that, that shouldn't be released and all sorts of things, but that's that's down to the system, isn't it? That, um, you know, if you're working with people and you're healing people, and you, hear, you know, and you hear people that have gone on to do amazing things when they have I mean I can't quote anybody specifically but you you do have people that come out and they, they do a lot of a huge amounts of great work but it's down to the people like yourself working internally to make that happen I guess some people want to punish people for to the end of the life but I mean is that I don't know that's not that's not the solution in in all cases I mean everything has to be taken individually but I think as we are individuals as humans we have a choice over how we behave and how we respond and actually how we respond and behave actually impacts ourselves directly so actually if you're then throwing out all that hate to somebody that's behaved in a way that you don't agree with which can be understandable but then actually you're damaging yourself and you're enabling that person's bad behavior to impact you by behaving the way that you are it gets very complicated <laughs> it, do, it does but i think emotions are very contagious and i think you do and so sometimes you when you in forensic services you pe- see people have worked in those services for a very long time and who 
don't feel freed up to be their emotional selves or you know so they macho their way through situations and actually that they end up having quite a hard shell about themselves and you can see that sometimes they themselves are being quite damaged by their experiences because they're just full of anger you know very angry towards the people that they're working with whereas I think the more love and compassion that you hold in yourself the more freed up you are to be your own emotionally authentic self the easier it is actually to not go home and worry about it or drink or have an argument with your partner as as a means of coping yeah I was going to say how, how did it and how has it impacted you over the years is it have you managed to keep that sort of because it is, it's about how you protect yourself, how you put that sort of level of protection around yourself before you go. And it, very much that's a therapist thing. And certainly when you're working with energies like sort of Reiki and stuff like that, you do have to ground yourself. You do have to put a layer of protection around yourself so that you don't get connected to sort of negative energies that can sort of seep in when you're opening yourself up to working with energy itself. I think I've done quite a lot of things to try and protect my emotional physical well-being so things like exercise uh, you know the running and yoga brain training meditation getting out into nature all those all those sorts of things are really really important also used quite a lot of neurotechnology um, devices for kind of like calming your nervous system but also I think really focusing on what noticing what I feel myself and for me being able to feel love and compassion, uh, love in kind of like agape, you know, the broader love for fellow man is really, really important. And I think that helps me stay healthy in doing this kind of challenging work, really. Yeah, and I think you're absolutely right. I mean, you've, you've mentioned quite a few things there that I embrace and I have done, you know, for years. And for me, it's like, well, it's being happy within yourself. It's like loving yourself. And that's not an egotistical thing. It's about caring and compassion for yourself. I mean, obviously, we, we are only human. We do have moments where you go, Arr! but that negative self-talk, it, you wouldn't do it to somebody else so it's actually I've, I mean, I've ironed or you know ironed out any of that I used to be quite sort of indecisive and I always used to say that's because I'm a Libra and I like to get balanced but actually now I've recognized that and I, don't, I, I genuinely don't I'm saying I don't I need and I'm automatically wanting to go don't use a negative Sarah use a positive because I actually think positively most of the time you know and when I start to write anything I always need to change that so we can change that sentence we'll reword it we'll reframe I love the power of the reframe you can reframe it and work that sentence into something different so you experience the world in a different way like you said being out in nature I mean for me I love going out trail running I mean I was out on Monday night to us recording this out with a head torch on in the dark and it was all obviously the fields were all wet and going through brooks <laughs> just by the time I finished but you know it's exciting you're out you're having an adventure you're connecting with nature and it's just wonderful you know you're doing and it doesn't cost anything you know you're just out there enjoying life you know and it's appreciating it and gratitude and appreciation. And as we're recording this again, I'm looking out into my garden and it's just beautiful. Bright blue skies here in Blight. It's minus one degree. Oh, actually, no, it's not. It's minus three degrees. So it's really cold, and it's but it's crisp. There's like this sort of light dusting of snow that's gone crispy. And it's just beautiful. And you just get, it's magical and you get that energy from it. So if you bring that into your life and you always look for the positives, and as you say, work with any therapist, because there's so many therapies out there 
It's just finding the ones that are right for you. But you've got to be ready to embrace it, haven't you? You have to be ready and want to bring about that change. I don't want to sort of dwell too much about the work you're doing in SAG. I want to know what you've been doing, what, what else you're doing as well. <laughs> There's other exciting stuff you do. But yeah, it's, it's just bringing that change about. I mean, with working with the people that you, you know, you work with in the prisons, are they selected on that basis of being ready to embrace that? Or do they have to have that treatment, whether they like it or not? <laughs> Well, this is the thing. I mean, you can't forcibly treat anyone in prison, but the people that came to us, they would have said, well, what choice do I have? The parole board said that I've got to do some kind of treatment. And we did have people who were really motivated just to have peace of mind and not want to offend ever again. And then there were people who were literally only there because the parole board had said that you need to be doing some kind of kind of treatment. But actually, I do think you can foster motivation for treatment. So you can't, you know, you can't forcibly treat somebody, but... You know, a lot of why people don't get involved in treatment is because they don't feel worthy of treatment, so they don't feel good enough for it. So we would do things like we'd sit in the therapy room whether the person showed up or not, and they could see us because our the therapy rooms were above where they lived. So they could see that we'd gone into the therapy room and so then there's a there's a sense of, oh well that you know, she's given me her time even though I'm not even there so we had a really high attendance rate for therapy but I suppose I just wanted to come back to I think whilst it's important to find the positive I also think all of our emotions are important and actually if you're trying to turn off feelings like fear sadness and shame it does dull down your ability to experience happiness joy pride all those sorts of things as well we're basically making our ability to feel be subdued so there's something about you can't have the highs can you without having the lows because you have the contrast and there's something about I think being able to be in those dark and more challenging moments and to know that actually there's something that can be gained from those two you can grow from those opportunities I know that's really hard when you know some people have crises that go on for very very long periods of time and it can feel quite hopeless but actually if you can find the growth in those moments then it makes it possible to achieve the the happiness no absolutely and I think you know when you do the inner work which is what we're referring to and sort of work on the mind and understanding how everything works I think you start to reduce the longevity of those periods of time because you have the tools and techniques to put into place. Because, you know, I would like to say that I'm kind of like 95% sort of upbeat. But when I have those down moments, I recognise them for what they are. And I always know that it's probably going to be like a 24-hour window. I allow myself to feel it. It's like, do you know what? I'm going to wallow in it. I don't care. I'm going to wallow. I'm going to allow myself to feel these emotions because life, you know, just get it out. You know? And then it's like, I've had enough of feeling like this. What am I going to do? How can I learn from this? What What is it? What can I move forward from? And invariably, like you say, it will make you stronger and it makes you shift. And actually there's a point of, when you get to that point, there's like, it's almost like this sort of overwhelm and all of this stuff and it, then it brings you all down. But actually I, I, I view it very much as life. You're chucking all this stuff on and you get to a point where there's just too much, too much, too much and you kind of have this breakdown. But then that gives you the opportunity to step back, review it and go, okay, what can I whittle away at? What don't I need? What doesn't serve me anymore? Emotionally, physically, practically, anything. Right, well, actually that's pushed me into that decision. I can make this decision now because... Actually, I have to make this decision. And then you can let go and you can move forward with more clarity, more focus. But life being what it is, you gather stuff. It's like that that stone rolling down the hill. It gathers moss, you know. And But or, no, you don't always want those lumpy bits of moss. You have to get rid of them and have a, have a shower. <laughs> 
yeah, and then you can move forward again. Life's just a lesson of learning. Absolutely. And I think all of those, all of those kind of like more vulnerable emotions, they, there's something to be learned from them, isn't there? You know, they, if you're depressed, then maybe that's a, a loud message that you need to do something to change how your life is at the moment. So I know that sounds very glib and it's not as simple and straightforward as, as that when you haven't got the energy perhaps to make big changes. But, you know, there's something, I think it's important not to be frightened of some of these other emotions. No, exactly. I think that acknowledgement and that acceptance of where you are at is the first point because it's when you're in denial, but actually when you acknowledge it, you can you go, right, well, that's where I'm at. So, okay, well, I'll sit with it. What can I do? But at least I've acknowledged it. And then maybe it's speaking out about how you feel to someone that you can have a conversation with, reaching out, watching stuff, listening to stuff. And then you start to listen and tune into your instinct and your intuition and yeah, it might take longer. Sometimes it might be instantaneous. Something might just click. But yeah, it's feeling it, breathing it, acknowledging it and moving on from it. You're doing other stuff now talking about moving on, aren't you? You're you're not just working with prisons. You're working with, um, as you said right at the beginning, sort of high performance athletes, which I guess when you've had all your a big life of focus, 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 we're not all going to be like Tom Daly and suddenly take up the knitting needles. You need to find something to rechannel that focus that you've had and that intention. I mean, I was listening to a radio programme the other morning. No, in fact, yesterday morning, because they're talking about swimming pools closing in the UK because of the cost of heating them all. And this mother was on saying, yeah, well, you know, it's part of what we do. We help our children get up. We get up at four in the morning to go to the swimming pool. It's like, oh, my gosh. But that takes some dedication. And once you've, if that's been taken away from you, it must leave you a little bit sort of lost and empty. Absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm in the process of, of my own transition into, that kind of work but I think transitions are particularly crucial I think for people who've had this huge focus for their lives and I think sport can be brilliant for helping us regulate our emotions it you know it keeps us you're a trail runner so you know that that it has an impact on our well-being when we move and uh, you know the focus on things like breathing that encourages mindfulness and we could just feel better at the end of doing a bit of exercise so Exercise can be brilliant in terms of emotional regulation, but I think when exercise sport has been your be-all and end-all, for some people it can mean they don't develop enough other strategies for managing their emotion. And also the the highs that come with, if you've been very successful, and so the highs that come with that, if you're then moving into a phase of your life where you're past your peak, just by virtue of your your age and 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 what your body is capable of doing compared to a younger person that's very difficult to adjust to and especially I think we all accept that once we get to kind of like the midlife that our bodies are starting to slow down a bit more but of course for elite athletes they're hitting that much earlier on in life where some of that you know lots of their friends won't yet be at that phase so they're having to navigate issues around retirement at an age where we would never be thinking about that and it's like how do you keep yourself with a sense of purpose and how do you keep yourself emotionally regulated how do you keep the hope and ambition there and that sense of purpose and drive when all of your identity has been invested in what whether it be cricket football rugby whatever that all of your identity has become focused on what you can do with your body on a on a pitch or in a in a tournament and how do you manage to make the next phase of your life feel as positive and successful yeah absolutely i mean because you as you say when you somebody's had that level of success and had it early it's 
Yeah, I mean, where, where do you go? What do you do if you've invested so much of your life? And that emotional intelligence has only, it's kind of just, it's been niched, hasn't it? It's not had that chance necessary to expand because you've literally been on a one track, which is why people get so brilliant at something because they are just one tracking. Whereas all the rest of us are just sort of open to everything all of the time. And you, yeah, but then they've got, also got this opportunity. When you flip it round, they've got all of that drive and energy and that can be repurposed into something else, but it's under understanding and finding out what that is but it's a great that they've achieved what they've achieved you know they obviously not can't they're not necessarily going to replicate it on the same level but I think it's key to finding the purpose isn't it absolutely and recognizing that actually your you know we our identities take different forms at different points in our lives we have multiple identities and how we create an identity for who we want to be going forward and what we want as our purpose and what gives us meaning and value to our lives and how we feel we contribute meaning and value um, to society if we're no longer able to do the thing that we were doing as well as we could do it previously. Yeah so I mean where do you where do you go with somebody who comes to you in that sort of situation how do you sort of start with them I mean are they on the cusp of leaving that or have they already kind of left that heightened career or or could they come to you at any point because I would think that if you are in one of those sort of high performance roles that to come to you in advance of your career coming to end to sort of prep up would be the best point I mean although you know obviously I guess most people suddenly it's ended it's like oh (laughs) now what (laughs) well exactly that's that's exactly it to to prepare in advance knowing full well that that is going to be a difficult point makes a lot more sense but the reality is that often what happens is people get to the end and then they drop off a cliff and crash and then find themselves using quite dysfunctional coping strategies perhaps like um, you know substances or sex as a way of a way of coping with and finding themselves being irritable with their partners and their kids that huge sense of loss but I think things are gradually starting to change people are becoming aware that the transition is so important and that actually retirement is a very difficult phase for it's not just um, athletes you know pe- people who go into banking have a similar kind of experience because they often retire at a much earlier age and they then also find themselves having this kind of like crash of who am I now I'm in this position but yeah always I would say if you know you've got a major transition coming up in life it doesn't have to be retirement obviously but some other transition then you need to prepare in advance equally there are people who for instance are haven't encountered an injury which hasn't been planned or predicted and so perhaps they've just found themselves flung into that but obviously retirement's your 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 in some ways your forte isn't it Sarah yeah (laughs) yes Well, I sort of work with people sort of midlife, you know, moving on and making that transition. And actually, I'm kind of going through that transition again myself. I mean, for me, at 39, I left self, I became self-employed in recruitment and then got into coaching. And I've got a recruitment business and a coaching practice and a podcast, obviously, and various other things that I do as well. And, you know, you, you, it's, it's a transition because I think, you know, the world we live in today is very different to the one that our parents were living in. You know, I mean, I'm what, 57 now. So, you know, it's, it, it is very, very different. And I was actually going to come back to what you were just saying then about that sort of planning ahead, because I think this can be true for big events as well, because you hear about sort of like people getting married and the bride gets all caught up in all the whole, but nobody actually stops and thinks about, well, what's going to happen after all that sort of big event? 
And what's life going And I think people get caught up into all of that excitement, then it all falls flat and that's when the problems start. But actually, if you're planning ahead, and it's not because people, it's that adrenaline, isn't it? It's that sort of like the thrill-seeking, the excitement, the da-da-da-da. But that's kind of quite unnatural to live at that level. But when you're used to it, like you're coming back to the sports people and the elite athletes, and I guess people have had, inverted commas, overnight success as a you know musician or an artist of any nature suddenly thrown into the stratosphere to suddenly then sort of get kind of crashed for whatever reason. There's no preparation. There's no sort of thought process into because you're in the moment, which is great and nothing wrong with being in the moment. And you don't want to sort of say, well, I can't be in the moment because I need to plan for what might happen next, next month, next year, next week, next year or what have you. But it's kind of doing those bite-sized bits along the way and having some sort of interest. I mean, there's a guy that I know, I haven't seen him for years, actually, but he used to be a professional footballer. He played for Forest, played for Northern Ireland. Um, he then ended up being the physio for Nottingham Forest. Then, you know, as they do, they get sacked. I remember talking to him, as you do in wine bars in your 40s, <laughs> chatting to him and encouraging him to sort of go on his own. And he's got, you know, he's got his own practice now, you know, his own physiotherapy practice and he does other therapies and things like that. So he sort of took being a professional footballer into physio and then into his own business as well, uh, which is a lovely... That's, that's if I can understand him. He's broad Northern Irish. And I was like, what's that you're saying, Gary? <laughs> Especially when it's in a bar and music. Northern, <laughs> not Northern Ireland, actually. Beg your pardon, he's from Derry. Beg your pardon, he's from Derry. So very, very Irish accent. <laughs> Naomi Murphy, that sounds a very Irish name, Naomi, is it? Yeah, well, family heritage is, is obviously Irish, but yeah, not not for me. Not enough Irish in me to get a, to be able to get an Irish passport. Oh no, damn! <laughs> <laughs> what would you encourage people, or what do you encourage people to do if they are sort of at that stage, as if they are sort of motoring towards that? I think something about kind of recognizing that you do need. Um, things to be positive about and actually it's something about people often feel as though they're having a massive loss but actually we need loss and be able to be able to shed something for something new to emerge and so actually in the midst of of loss what you can see sometimes is kind of like opportunity massive opportunities to really do something quite different and I think if you can stay focused on the forward you can see that there is the opportunity to to create something different rather than just dwelling in the past which might might sound odd for psychologists to say but I think the past can be really helpful in understanding who we are but actually our focus does have to be on the future it's a bit like running you're not you know if you're always looking or driving if you're always looking in the rearview mirror you end up having a crash aren't you so you do need to keep your eyes on the road that's ahead of you and I think it's important to listen to your body and see what pulls you and see you know what what is it that sparks joy in you what do you find yourself wanting to be drawn towards what do you want find yourself pulling away from quite often our bodies know what we need Absolutely. And you can feel it, can't you? I mean, it's, it's what makes your heart sing. And working as a coach, which will be the same as you do in, in the work that you do, you know, you you, see, you can see people's physiology change, you know, and they're sort of talking about sort of, I don't know, working with spreadsheets in an, an accounts office. But then when they start to talk about what they're doing and they go, well, hang on a minute, how can we work this so that these two things ha- you know, get together? Because actually, if you're passionate about this... But you're doing, how does that work? How can we, how can we integrate, you know, your skills and your experience with your talents and your passion so you can actually then fulfil your purpose, you know, what you're here to do, how you're here to serve. And you can see me, I'm getting excited because I love <laughs> people, but if I'm setting to something that's like, no, it's, oh my God. Whereas Pete, my producer, does love a spreadsheet, don't you, Pete? So 
<laughs> delete all, keep in as appropriate. <laughs> But you're so you, as you said, you're going through this transition, and I, and I get for you coming out of sort of being within that sort of locked up environment. It must you must be finding it quite freeing to be sort of working with a completely different genre of people, albeit working with the same sort of tools and techniques that you've always worked with, and in the same way, but with a completely different sort of type of person really yeah it feels quite liberating i mean there's part of me that thinks god why did i stay in a high secure prison for 17 years that's a long time to work in one place but i suppose i always felt like i was still having opportunities to learn new stuff and still being able to grow as a person but actually i think you know there's something really nice about stepping into a new area and doing something quite new and that feels really invigorating and exciting Excellent. So your ideal person then is is that sport that elite sports person. So if you are an elite sports person who is transitioning into new life, you need to get in touch with Naomi. So Naomi, I mean, it's but it's just been fab. I'm just fascinated. We'll have to do another one. This is just I just love I love talking to you. It's brilliant. So thank you so much. But how do people get in touch with you? So if, they, if there are people listening that want to discuss well, anything that we've talked about with you, how do they get hold of you? How, where do they find you? You can find me on Twitter as at NMPsychologist. I'm also on LinkedIn. I'm on social media quite a lot, so it's quite easy to get hold of me there. We will put your website details onto the link on the programme, so that's all good and well and good. Marvellous. So... Thank you and again, Naomi, for sharing so much fabulous insight and wisdom and it's just been brilliant. Loved it, loved it, loved it. And thank you all for listening. And if you want to get in touch with me, I'm Sarah at sarahjnaylor.com. So there we go, nice and easy. If you enjoyed the episode, please do rate, review, download, save, do whatever it is through wherever you are on whatever platform. And um, yeah, until next time, thank you very much again for listening. Take care and have a great rest of the day week month year whatever it is whatever time it is you're doing whatever you're doing take care bye thanks for listening to the harnessing happiness podcast with sarah j naylor if you took value from the content please follow the show on your podcast app and to find out more about sarah's ape mindset visit sarahjnaylor.com that's sarahjnaylor.com